Section 3 of the Underground Railroad, Part 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Underground Railroad, Part 3, by William Still. Section 3. Eight and a half months secreted. Washington Sumlar, alias James Moore. But few could tell of having been eye-witnesses to outrages more revolting and disgraceful than Washington Sumlar. He arrived per steamer Pennsylvania, secreted, directly from Norfolk, Virginia, in 1855. He was thirty-two years of age, a man of medium size and quite intelligent. A merchant by the name of Smith owned Washington. Eight and a half months before escaping, Washington had been secreted in order to shun both master and auction block. Smith believed in selling, flogging, cobbing, paddling, and all other kinds of torture, by which he could inflict punishment in order to make the slaves feel his power. He thus tyrannized over about twenty-five head. Being naturally passionate, when in a brutal mood he made his slaves suffer unmercifully. Said Washington, quote, on one occasion, about two months before I was secreted, he had five of the slaves, some of them women, tied across a barrel, lashed with a cowhide, and then cobbed. This was a common practice." Unquote. Such treatment was so inhuman and so incredible that the committee hesitated at first to give credence to the statement, and only yielded when facts and evidences were given which seemed incontestable. The first effort to come away was made on the steamship City of Richmond. Within sixty miles of Philadelphia, in consequence of the ice obstruction in the river, the steamer had to go back. How sad Washington felt at thus having his hopes broken to pieces may be imagined, but cannot be described. Great as was his danger, when the steamer returned to Norfolk, he was safely gotten off the boat and under the eye of officers walked away. Again he was secreted in his old doleful quarters where he waited patiently for the spring. It came. Again the opportunity for another trial was presented, and it was seized unhesitatingly. This time his tried faith was rewarded with success. He came through safely to the committee's satisfaction as well as his own. The recital of his sufferings and experience had a very inspiring effect on those who had the pleasure of seeing Washington in Philadelphia. Although closely secreted in Norfolk, he had, through friends, some little communication with the outside world. Among other items of information which came to his ears was a report that his master was being pressed by his creditors, and had all his slaves advertised for sale. An item still more sad also reached his ear, to the effect that his wife had been sold away to North Carolina, and thus separated from her child two years old. The child was given as a present to the niece of the master. While this is only a meagre portion of his interesting story, it was considered at the time sufficient to identify him, should the occasion ever require it. We content ourselves, therefore, simply with giving what was recorded on the book. Washington spent a short while in Philadelphia in order to recruit, after which he went on north, where colored men were free. Arthur Fowler alias Benjamin Johnson. Arthur came from Spring Hill, Maryland. Edward Fowler held Arthur in fetters and usurped authority over him as his lord and master. Arthur saw certain signs connected with his master's family 
which presaged to him that the day was not far distant when somebody would have to be sold to raise money to pamper the appetites of some of the superior members of the patriarchal institution. Among these provocations were indulgence in a great deal of extravagance, and the growing up of a number of young masters and mistresses. Arthur would often look at the heirs, and the very thought of their coming into possession would make him tremble. Nothing so affected Arthur's mind so much in moving him to make a bold stroke for freedom as these heirs. Under his old master the usage had been bad enough, but he feared that it would be a great deal worse under the sons and daughters. He therefore wisely concluded to avoid the impending danger by availing himself of the underground railroad. After completing such arrangements as he deemed necessary, he started, making his way along pretty successfully, with the exception of a severe encounter with Jack Frost, by which his feet were badly bitten. He was not discouraged, however, but was joyful over his victory, and hopeful in view of his prospects in Canada. Arthur was about thirty years of age, medium size, and of a dark color. The committee afforded him needed assistance, and sent him off. Sundry Arrivals About the 1st of June, 1855, the following arrivals were noted in the record book. Emory Roberts, alias William Kemp Talbot County, Maryland. Daniel Payne, Richmond, Virginia. Harriet Mayo, John Judah, and Richard Bradley, Petersburg and Richmond. James Crummel, Samuel Jones, Tolbert Jones, and Henry Howard, Haverford County, Maryland. Lewis Childs, Richmond. Daniel Bennett, alias Henry Washington, and his wife, Martha, and two children. George and a nameless babe. The road at this time was doing a fair business in a quiet way. Passengers were managing to come without having to suffer in any very violent manner, as many had been called upon to do in making similar efforts. The success attending some of these passengers was partly attributable to the intelligence of individuals, who for years had been planning and making preparations to effect the end in view. Besides, the favorableness of the weather tended also to make travel more pleasant than in colder seasons of the year. While matters were thus favorable, the long stories of individual suffering and of practices and customs among young and old masters and mistresses were listened to attentively, although the short summer nights hardly afforded sufficient opportunity for writing out details. Emory arrived safely from Talbot County. As a slave he had served Edward Lloyd. He gave his master the character of treating his slaves with great severity. The lash was freely used, quote, on women as well as men, old and young, unquote. In this kind of property Lloyd had invested to the extent of about five hundred head, so Emory thought. Food and clothing for this large number were dealt out very stintedly, and daily suffering was the common lot of slaves under Lloyd. Emory was induced to leave, to avoid a terrible flogging which had been promised him for the coming Monday. He was a married man, but exercised no greater control over his wife than over himself. She was hired on a neighboring plantation. The way did not seem open for her to accompany him, so he had to leave her behind. His mother, brothers, and sisters had to be left also. The ties of kindred, usually strong in the breasts of slaves, were hard for Emory to break. 
but by a firm resolution that he would not stay on Lloyd's plantation to endure the impending flogging, he was nerved to surmount every obstacle in the way of carrying his intention into execution. He came to the committee hungry and in want of clothing, and was aided in the usual way. Daniel Payne this traveller was a man who might be said to be full of years, infirm and well-nigh used up under a Virginia taskmaster. But within the old man's breast a spark was burning for freedom, and he was desirous of reaching free land on which to lay his body when life's toil ended. So the committee sympathized with him, aided him, and sent him on to Canada. He was owned by a man named M. W. Morris of Richmond, whence he fled. Harriet Mayo, John Judah, and Richard Bradley were the next who brought joy and victory with them. Harriet was a tall, well-made, intelligent young woman, twenty-two years of age. She spoke with feelings of much bitterness against her master, James Cuthbert, saying that he was a very hard man, at the same time adding that his wife was still worse. Harriet had been sold once. She admitted, however, having been treated kindly a part of her life. In escaping she had to leave her poor old mother, with no hope of ever seeing her again. Likewise she regretted having to leave three brothers, who kindly aided her to escape. But having her heart bent on freedom, she resolved that nothing should deter her from putting forth efforts to get out of slavery. John was a mulatto, of genteel address, well clothed, and looked as if he had been well fed. Miss Elijah Lambert had the honor of owning John, and was gracious enough to allow him to hire his time for one hundred and ten dollars per annum. After the sum was punctually paid, John could do what he pleased with any surplus earnings. Now, as he was fond of nice clothing, he was careful to earn a balance sufficient to gratify this love. By similar means many slaves were seen in southern cities elegantly dressed, and strangers and travellers from the north gave all the credit to indulgent masters, not knowing the facts in the case. John accused his mistress of being hard in money matters, not caring how the servants fared, so she got, quote, plenty of money out of them, unquote. For himself, however, he admitted that he had never experienced as great abuses as many had. He was fortunate in being wedded to a free wife, who was privy to all his plans and schemes looking forth to freedom, and fully acquiesced in the arrangement of matters, promising to come on after he should reach Canada. This promise was carried out in due time, and they were joyfully reunited under the protection of the British Lion. Richard was about twenty-seven. For years the hope of freedom had occupied his thoughts, and many had been the longing desires to see the way open, by which he could safely get rid of oppression. He was sufficiently intelligent to look at slavery in all its bearings, and to smart keenly under even ordinarily mild treatment. Therefore he was very happy in the realization of his hopes. In the recital of matters touching his slave life, he alluded to his master, Samuel Ball, as a very hard man utterly unwilling to allow his servants any chance whatever. For reasons which he considered judicious, he kept the matter of his contemplated escape wholly private, not even revealing it to his wife. Probably he felt that she would not be willing to give him up, not even for freedom, as long as she could not go too. Her name was Emily, and she belonged to William Bolden. 
How she felt when she learned of her husband's escape is for the imagination to picture. These three interesting passengers were brought away snugly secreted in Captain B.'s schooner. James Crummell, Samuel and Tolbert Jones, and Henry Howard This party united to throw off the yoke in Haverford County, Maryland. James, Samuel, and Tolbert had been owned by William Hutchins. They agreed in giving Hutchins the character of being a notorious frolicker and a very hard master. Under him matters were growing worse and worse. Before the old master's death times were much better. Henry did not live under the same authority that his three companions were subjected to, but belonged to Philip Garrison. The continual threat to sell harassed Henry so much that he saw no chance of peace or happiness in the future. So one day the master laid the last straw on the camel's back, and not another day would Henry stay. Many times it required a pretty heavy pressure to start off a number of young men, but in this instance they seemed unwilling to wait to be worn out under the yoke and violent treatment, or to become encumbered with wives and children before leaving. All were single, with the exception of James, whose wife was free, and named Charlotte. She understood about his going to Canada, and, of course, was true to him. These young men had, of course, been reared under circumstances altogether unfavorable to mental development. Nevertheless, they had fervent aspirations to strike for freedom. Lewis Giles belonged in the prison-house of bondage in the city of Richmond, and owed service to a Mr. Lewis Hill, who made it a business to keep slaves expressly to hire out, just as a man keeps a livery stable. Lewis was not satisfied with this arrangement. He could see no fair play in it. In fact, he was utterly at variance with the entire system of slavery, and a long time before he left had plans laid with a view of escaping. Through one of the underground railroad agents, the glad tidings were borne to him that a passage might be procured on a schooner for twenty-five dollars. Lewis at once availed himself of this offer, and made his arrangements accordingly. He, however, made no mention of this contemplated movement to his wife, Louisa, and to her astonishment he was soon among the missing. Lewis was a fine-looking article, six feet high, well-proportioned, and of dark chestnut color, worth probably twelve hundred dollars in the Richmond market. Touching his slave life, he said that he had been treated pretty well, except that he had been sold several times. Intellectually, he was above the average run of slaves. He left on the 23rd of April and arrived about the 2nd of June, having, in the meantime, encountered difficulties and discouragements of various kinds. His safe arrival, therefore, was attended with unusual rejoicing. Daniel Bennett and his wife and children were the next in order. A woman poorly clad with a babe just one month old in her arms, and a little boy at her side who could scarcely toddle, together with a husband who had never dared under penalty of the laws to protect her or her little ones, presented a most painfully touching picture. It was easy enough to see that they had been crushed. The husband had been owned by Captain James Taylor, the wife and children by George Carter. The young mother gave Carter a very bad character, affirming that it was a, quote, common practice with him to flog the slaves stripped entirely naked, unquote, that she had herself been so flogged since she had been a married woman. How the husband was treated, the record book is silent. He was about thirty-two, 
the wife about twenty-seven. Especial pains were taken to provide aid and sympathy to this family in their destitution, fleeing under such peculiarly trying circumstances, and from such loathsome brutality. They were from Aldee P.O., London County, Virginia, and passed through the hands of the committee about the 11th of June. What has been their fate since is not known. End of Section 3 Recording by Spoken For